You know, as I look back at my life, some of the craziest, most enlightening, most thought-provoking conversations that I've ever had have been at a bar with friends, with family, and with strangers. I have talked about the cosmos, the forming and dying of planets, time travel, parenting, crime prevention, storytelling, and so much more at a bar. While a bar may have many connotations, uh, some may be very bad, in my life it's been a lot of fun and exciting times and strange enough, a lot of enlightenment. Today, I talked to Carla Green in her second appearance on the show. And we discuss bars and distilleries during the coronavirus and where they're headed as this dissipates and drinking stories. This is a fun one. Enjoy, Carla Green. All right, guys, we're back with Carla Green, who has been on the show before, and um, we were talking about drinking last time, and honestly, we're going to talk about it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bourbon tasting or whiskey tasting today uh, for your pleasure for that. So, but first, how have you been, Carla? Tell me about life since our world has been turned upside down in many ways. Darian, thank you so much for having me back on. I am very blessed right now. Um, my husband did get laid off, but we're staying afloat. And um, I have a house stocked full of pretty decent alcohol. <laughs> Lovely. So, that's always a bonus, although um, I haven't really been drinking too much, um, but it's nice to have on hand. I, I, you know what? I haven't drank a lot, but I've been drinking pretty frequently. There's no lie about that. But I, I'm a big, like, have a drink with, uh, while making dinner type of person. I'm like, yeah. It's like a big thing for me. I'm making dinner. I got to have something to drink, you know? Is your wife still splitting beers with you? Oh, you remember that, huh? Of course. <laughs> Actually, funny story about that. Yesterday, you know, I was finishing, uh, cutting the lawn, working out the whole thing. And I, I mean, I get really thirsty for a beer after I work out. It's like crazy that how I'm like, oh, I can't wait to have a dark beer. So I have one and I'm like, wow, this is like going down quickly. Like this is delicious. And then I said, this may be a two beer day for me. It's not normal for me. Usually I'm like one beer, I'm done. And she goes, can we split the second one? And I was like, no, I don't think so. It's not happening. <laughs> I want this. <laughs> like, All right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while I'm splitting it, but, you know, now I'm like, I just want to drink it to myself. Come on, you know? <laughs> so what's in your... That... No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's great that what were you saying? Oh, it's just great that they're considering alcohol an essential business. Um, touching on what we spoke about last time on the first podcast about, you know, concerns ar around, you know, excessive... Impulsive drinking is never good, but um, with the industry I work in, it's it's nice to be considered essential because my company and others um, just watching social media and 
things like that, we've managed to um, to stay afloat and to also give back to the community. A lot of the hospitality and service industry folks um, who have been out of a job, like my husband, um, so that hits home for us. It's just nice to know that they're actively involved in uh, doing what they can to keep everyone afloat. Yeah, yeah. it's a central business thing. It's interesting. Like, I'm sure there's some people who feel it's controversial that, um, you know, liquor or alcohol-based places are open. But it's interesting, I think, that there's a real dilemma with that or real issue in the sense that there. this is maybe the dark side of it, is that, you know, there are people who have some real issues. And if you take alcohol away from them, they would go through tremendous withdrawal and maybe a really bad situation for them. I know a lot of people probably don't drink or maybe just don't have a lot of knowledge. They're thinking, what? You know, but it's a, it's a actual real thing, you know? Yeah. They have, um, the DTs and the people who will go with, um, you know, serious withdrawal from drinking. I mean, that, that in itself is a, is a complicated issue, health concern. Yeah. More, what's more concerning for me is if you have someone in that situation and the hospitals and the clinics were closed because they're focusing on COVID-19 patients. So because it's not considered life-threatening in a way, um, you know, those people were also um, not cared for. So that that is an issue. And, you you know, you do see a lot of headlines with, I mean, it's, it's really, really sad, really tragic. People who are, um, you know, alcoholism is going up, spousal abuse. Um, I mean, even, God, this broke my heart, but um, molestation and, you know, because the kids are home and, I mean, you're just stacking one tragedy on top of another. And I've just, I don't even, I mean, it's, I don't even want to, there's just no words. I, I'm stumbling because there are really no words for the feelings that that brings to my heart for people who are suffering with that. Um, but I think we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel there. You know, what's interesting is there are some like States around us like Ohio. So I'm in the Southern part of Indiana, which is right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And then you've got Ohio to our East and, um, all of their liquor stores are ran by the state. So they actually closed some of those stores. So people actually couldn't get alcohol there. They had to drive across the river, across the Ohio river, Kentucky to buy the alcohol, which is what normally happens anyways, because when you have a state ran, um, vendor, I guess they, they're limited in what they can bring into the state. You know, it's all picked and cherry picked from who's ever in charge of that, that position or, you know, that responsibility. So they usually come to Kentucky anyways to find more selection, but and I mean, even um, states that have medical marijuana, like those were also closed. They weren't considered um, essential, which is essential for a lot of people. But they are. It is essential for a lot of people. I mean, you know, it's funny. It's a weird issue, right? Because there's the, the medicinal aspect of it. And then, you know, for marijuana and then there's the recreational aspect. You know, I know some people who have needed it purely for you know, medicinal aspects. And then I have friends who are like, they're just loading up like crazy on weed, <laughs> you know? It, yeah. Well, you know, I think we talked about that last time is the the combination of the two. But, you know, they're all, 
you're all, you know, you're self-medicating essentially. And I hope that people aren't looking at, um, you know, a leisurely pour of something and, or a hit of a something else as, um, self-medication. I, I hope it doesn't come down to that, but those are our oldest drugs <laughs> that we've been yeah. Um, yeah. falling back on since, you know, the dawn of time. So it's, goes without saying and i i do feel like um you know the alcohol industry has always stepped up times of crisis i mean my my company heaven hill made tens of thousands of gallons of um hand sanitizer and then you know even back world war ii and the great depression and um you know they were just always there as a resource for the government so i can see why it's still considered an essential business I didn't know that, that that was um, in production like that, that that was, they were helping out with that. It's, it's just the things you don't know, right? I mean, there's so much we don't know about what's happening behind the scenes of things. I think for me, I like to, I like to explore all different things. You know, there's many things and topics I talk about. doesn't mean that I endorse it or I'm for it, but I just, I think it's good for people to hear about what's going on the other side of the coin. And when we last talked, we were talking about, I think I was putting to you about how, you know, different generations like these younger generations are drinking less and stuff. And then you have the coronavirus come on and then people are drinking like crazy. They're eating like crazy. They're just slovenly. It's like gluttonous behavior all over the place. I'm like, oh man, what a change. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't have numbers on that. I, I wish I would have done a little bit more research there to really come at you with some facts. But I think as we've learned with even just watching the circus of our politics, you can't really get a straight factual number out of anyone. So you could read an article one day and it could tell you one number and then you could read another article and it'd be something completely different. So you don't, you know, the reliability of your sources um, are, you, are an issue. And I mean, people are just kind of falling back on, well, whatever's clever, <laughs> whatever gets the job done, I guess, for people who are really struggling to cope with the, this new normal that we have. Yeah, well, the reliability of information, that is, I've had some conversations related to that as of late. And uh, I forgot, I was talking to a guy about artificial intelligence, and we were talking about that related to information and a simulation. I mean, this sounds like a conversation you'd have if you were high or you were drinking quite a bit, but like you know, indistinguishable realities from you know, simulation versus reality. And a lot of times it feels like the information that we're getting is it's hard to decipher what is real and what is essentially a hoax. And and then we got kind of this team, this team based mentality of like, I'm on this side of the equation or I believe this and that. And so it's become this like this warring aspect of I'm on this side, I'm on that side, that's fake news, this is real news. It's very confusing, honestly. Divide and conquer through fear. Yeah. It's just difficult to know what is the actual uh, information, you know, so... But even like I had a guy, he sent me this article, he has a news organization, his name is Peter Nowak, awesome guy. And it was this incredible article that 73% of people disagree on basic facts. Oh, <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> He's like, it's true, man. 
people can't agree on things that are basic common facts. And I'm like, what is happening to us? <laughs> Can you give me an example? Or did he give you an example? No, he didn't get, it wasn't an example. He just sent me this article. I kind of skimmed through it and uh, I have to read over it again, but it was basically like if something was like known to be true, the fact like, you know, whatever, the sun's hot, you know, or something like, oh, why not really? You know, maybe it's, you know, it's like just basic stuff, you know, like, that you would knew to know to be true. Um, there's water in the ocean, you know, like, like basic facts. Like people will argue with you that these things aren't true. Sounds like a flat earther conspiracy. Doesn't it sound exactly like that? It's like, and it's weird about our information. Like you can, let's say you took an astronaut, a person who's been in space, has seen the curvature of the earth. And then they come down and talk to a flat earther and said, I've been there. I've seen the earth is flat. I mean, earth is a round, the whole thing. And they'll go, no, that's not true. I don't understand that. You know, like. If the earth was flat, cat would, cats would have pushed everything off of the edge by now. <laughs> <laughs> My cat does that too. He's always pushing things around. I don't know what that is. My, My chaps cat was mainly. Well, see, you're lucky because for me, um, she threw a fit that there wasn't water in the bowl at like 3.30 in the morning. So mm. she knocked off my very expensive, I think, $150 bottle of CBD off the counter. Mm. And it, the bottle didn't break, but the oil went everywhere. Uh, and my heart sunk. <laughs> my heart sank. I thought you were going to say it's a bottle of uh, gin or something. I'd be like, no. I'm like. That would be fine. I would be okay with that. Gin is not my forte. So I, you know, I'm good with the gin, but not the CBD. Well, you yeah. Take out a second mortgage to get another bottle. Yeah, that's expensive. Um, <laughs> let's jump into what's in your liquor, your cabinet. What's in your, your uh, arsenal? You just said you had quite a decent amount. I have a megaton. Uh, anybody that knows me knows I have a bar at my house and I have a lot of alcohol. Uh, I enjoy a good cocktail. What's in what's in the inventory right now? So right now I have um, Kentucky Owls confiscated, Oban fourteen, Old Forester nineteen ten, Blood mm. Oath Pack five. I've got um, Patron, uh, Extra Anejo. I've got uh, Plantation Rum, Smirnoff, Deep Betty. Uh, Luna, Zul, Tequila, Cointreau. And then some of the other bottles, uh, well, the ones we're tasting today, or I'm tasting, Elijah Craig, Rittenhouse, and mm -hmm. uh, one from a local distillery in Indiana called Starlight. It's a um, single barrel bottle and bond bourbon that's finished in a sherry cask, oh. an Oloroso oh. sherry cask. And then I've got, you know, some Don Julio's. I've got 1942 and uh, the Ravisado. Oh. Uh, Lots of Woodfords. I mean, I, uh, I've i got some stuff from across. I'm um, looking behind me, so I'm sorry if my voice is oh, it's okay. uh, trailing. But we like to, when my husband and I travel, we like to pick up bottles that are unique. So we've got a Floki, which is a single malt whiskey from uh, Iceland. We have, well, it's kind of funny. Uh, I laugh because I'm immature, but it's called Coochie Wine. It's a nice... <laughs> It's a it's it's a rice wine from Vietnam. Uh, we were supposed to go to Fiji next week. Uh, they have it's not it's not an alcohol or maybe they mix it with alcohol, but it's called kava kava. And I was looking forward to trying that, but um, that's actually kind of more it's supposed to be more like an upper. But they have it's like mm -hmm. a, something that you drink. 
ceremoniously. So uh, I was looking forward to that, but maybe we can reschedule that at some point. I have quite the uh, um, the inventory there. Yeah, I, I have a very similar one. I, I tend to have like, I'm not a big tequila person, but for some reason I have a lot of tequila. And I think as people have given it to me, over the years, uh, I like I do like Don Julio 1942. That's uh, mm-hmm. delicious. Um, beyond that, though, like I think like Casamigos, I have. Um, what else? I keep a lot of uh, bourbon and whiskey. Like today, I have this Sazerac White Rye whiskey that I got from this company called uh, I think it's Flaviar.com. Okay, and uh, basically, it's like a cocktail like you get a bottle of liquor every quarter and and you get tasting samples every quarter also and it's basically like a monthly a quarterly membership that you do okay you know i i used to be part of like these beer of the month clubs and stuff and sometimes what it is you just get like one beer you're like and the rest is disgusting you know it's like Mm -hmm. oh man and i'm much more like liquor so i was like this is probably a good thing i can choose the bottle that i want uh, to get uh, forward. So it's actually, it's a Sazerac rye whiskey um, you know, to be made with, you know, the Sazerac cocktail or drink, you know, so, which is probably my favorite uh, drink of all time, honestly. Really? Yes. I, I Something about the absinthe in it, like, I know a lot of bartenders and they make it, well, a lot of them I know don't even know what it is, but, um, but when they make it, they do the wash. They like do basically the rinse of the absinthe. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. I want the absinthe in the drink, the, you know, one fourth ounce. I want it in there. I want to taste. I want to taste the strength. I, I want to taste my alcohol. I don't want like it to be like washed away type of thing, you know? So. Do you feel the same way about vermouth when the glass is washed? Love Do vermouth. Want to- I want it in the drink. Do not wash it or rinse it to me. I don't want that. Well, at least you know what you want, because a lot of times as a, um, you know, bartender or, you know, just someone who's trying to get a feel for the guest, um, sometimes they have, they just order a drink and they don't have any idea of um, how they want it. Um, and then when you serve it to them, or like you're just kind of, I guess, um, default recipe, it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. So I always ask, like, how you know old fashions or Sazerac. I mean, do you like it sweeter? Do you, do you like rye? Do you want bourbon instead? You know, like I really try to ask these driving questions. You think they're buying a car, but uh, at the end of the day, they're buying their eyes. So I want them to know well, that, yeah. you know, I'm there for them. But that's interesting though. Um, a lot of people aren't fans of that strong licorice flavor that absinthe has. Yeah. I, I love that. I keep a bottle of Jägermeister always now in my fridge. Uh, very big Jaeger person. Love the digest. I like all those digestifs. Um, mm-hmm. Have it before a meal. Um, partially, I grew up partially in Germany, so I'm kind of used to that, in a sense. Oh. And the culture of drinking when you're. I didn't start drinking young, but you know, in that country, it's no big deal. You know, Germans are having wine with dinner with their kids who are like 15, 16, and stuff like that. And uh, but I like that kind of licorice taste and uh so absinthe is just probably uh Sazerac's my favorite drink but absinthe is my favorite liquor for sure uh oh. like the Hemingway drink you know with champagne and absinthe I'm a huge fan of that oh, I've never heard of that 
I've heard of a Hemingway, like, um, it's like a daiquiri. Yeah, yeah. This is a little different. It's just, uh, well, Ernest Hemingway, I guess, apparently, uh, it was this story that he said, if you want to, you know, have a good afternoon, have three or four of these and then take a nap, basically. And I was like, <laughs> sounds like a great idea, honestly. And so, uh, anything with a nap, I'm, Sign me up. You're into it, right? And so, like, we actually one time, uh, maybe like five, six years ago, we had basically a minion party. This was like a bunch of people I knew. Don't ask me why it was a minion party. It was, I don't know. It was just a minion party. And we had uh, these Ernest Hemingway drinks basically like served up all over the place. And everybody loved it. They were like, this is awesome champagne and, you know, absinthe. And, you know, a lot of people aren't. You know, your general public, they're not drinking absinthe. They're not really that tuned into it, you know. And so uh, we had a really good, I think it was like Leopold. It was really high in absinthe. It was delicious and um, mm. quite quite fun. A buddy of mine, after having it, his wife drove him home and he started swimming laps in a swimming pool. Just, I don't know why, he just did it, you know. Does he remember? Oh yeah, he remembers. He was like, it was great. He was like, I felt like I could swim for days. I was like, that's not normally not how you feel after you've you know had three or four of some of an alcoholic beverage. You know, true. This is true. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, well, I've we had a get together here. Um, they lifted the social gathering restrictions for Indiana on May first, mm-hmm. so we had a socially distanced. Uh, bonfire in our backyard and uh i had a couple but i hadn't eaten anything and the next day i i mean it just took me all day to recover and i i don't like that as i just feel like each year i get older i'm like my my max is two that's it (laughs) has that gone down for you throughout the years with that um no i mean when i was younger like so when I graduated high school, I was 16 and my, all my really good friends were a year ahead of me. So I graduated with that class. And of course we were, you know, having parties then when the parents were away and, um, you know, we were heavy drinkers then because we were just starting out Right, right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, college and all that. And then, um, in my early twenties, I stopped drinking almost until I was probably about 28, maybe. Around 28, because I was just really focused on fitness, um, I just stopped drinking. It just wasn't really my drug of choice. And I was really focused on just all the endorphins I was getting from working out. And then 28, 29, 30-ish, I started dabbling more in the craft cocktail scene. I started working at some really nice um, establishments in Florida and started learning about how to actually taste and what good alcohol was. And that kind of led me down to the path where I am today, where, I mean, it, while I was training for, you know, all my bodybuilding shows in my mid twenties, I was working at sports bars and things like dive bars. It's, you know, you really didn't, um, drink with your patrons and you, you weren't really coming up with crazy unique cocktails. It was like the sex on the beach during ladies night kind of thing. So there was, yeah. I just yeah. hadn't worked in the right venue, um, until I started working and, Actually, when I went back for my graduate degree is when I got my job as a cocktail waitress and then moved up as a bartender at a craft cocktail lounge. And that's kind of where I started, you know, really tasting flavors and 
learning about alcohol because at that point, I mean, I was 28 and I couldn't find a job with, I wanted to teach um, at the collegiate level. I wanted to even start off as an adjunct, but when they were telling me how much they get paid per semester, you're like, holy cow, it's, it ends up being like $12 an hour. You know, you, you do make more money than that as a bartender. So it was hard for me to give that lifestyle up. And I told myself, Hey, if I'm not going to go into teaching English, then I'm going to study as much as I can about the spirits industry and the history of spirits and deep dive into that because it still provided me that educational stuff that I could, you know, sink into. And, um, I just, I just rolled with it. And now who knows where the hospitality industry is going to end up. So I think it's a little bit scary for all of us right now, because we don't know if we have bars to come back to. Well, what do you see the bar scene being when, um, you know, things are eased back and, you know, maybe the public has gained a little more confidence in going back uh, into bars. And by the way, also, I do want to talk about this good alcohol aspect, because I think a lot of the public consumes, at least in my observation, consumes alcohol in uh, not a very nuanced way. You know, it's just a very like, just a habit versus like a very nuanced, more sophisticated uh, take on drinking. But we'll get to that. So how do you think it's going to be? Well, I am not a conspiracy theorist. Maybe I am. I don't know. Um, when you look at what bars serve for people, it's, you know, it is entertainment. It is an opportunity to get together with friends, but it's also an opportunity to share ideas. It kind of, it's like the same as the coffee houses in the 16 and 1700s. Um, those were places where people would come together to discuss current events and, um, you know, talk about art and history and politics and all the bad thing, religion, anything that, you know, it was nothing taboo to talk, you know, to talk to in a bar. And now with this fear, uh, everyone has a fear of each other. I think that's really going to stifle um, the vibe of a lot of, of a lot of bars and restaurants. I mean, you still might be able to save some, craft cocktail menus if you're um, piggybacking on a restaurant where, you know, you can not necessarily have a bar to sit at, but you can still produce awesome cocktails and um, offer that to your guests. I think those kind of places will survive. But I also, um, I, I don't, I've seen a lot of articles or, you know, watched a lot of independent, you know, YouTube videos on everything. And I, it concerns me because it almost feels like this was predicted, um, you know, far back as 2017. Uh, it was predicted that there was going to be this pandemic um, that we needed to be prepared for. So it feels a little bit planned to me. And I just kind of think that maybe uh, maybe they just won't have a service industry to go back to at this point, the, a lot of the, um, restrictions like the, the phasing or the reopening is only a month long. So they're putting all these restrictions on bars to, you know, start at 25% capacity, mm -hmm. 50, 
75 and then 100% by like July 4th. Well, that's only, you know, seven weeks away, maybe eight. I'm trying to figure out what day <laughs> the month is <laughs> because it's like all a blur now. But, but regardless, of course, there will be some small businesses that will not make it in two months. But the ones that do reopen up, they're putting all these like pressures. It's only a month depending on who's reopening when some people like might not reopen right away, but we're already on the reopening phase. So if you can just hold off for a month, it's like, why even, why even put those restrictions like that? I mean, it's, they act like it's going to be the, you know, for the rest of forever, it's always going to be like that. And we, we hope it isn't, but um, everyone's concerned about a second wave. And it's almost like you're, you're speaking it forth. Like, don't do that. We're not going to get a second wave. This is fine. We're going to survive and we're going to get through this. and. Hopefully our country will rebound economically because we were, you know, we were cruising for a while there. Yeah, we definitely were. We definitely were cruising for a while there. Um, those are all interesting thoughts. You know, it's funny as you were talking, it was like the stream of consciousness. Like, I think you, it feels like you've been really grappling with this, you know, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is good. I mean, it's good to grapple with things. I think it's, important you know i think i have my own ideas about a lot of things but i think listen there's been i was listening looking at a documentary from 2003 talking about a pandemic that was exactly like this so you know there's an element of people of um people who have known that you know a matter of time for things happening but you know um also not a very proactive species anyways uh generally human beings we're pretty bad at multitasking we're very procrastination heavy. So, I mean, not a lot of stuff surprises me, but I sure hope that things like bars and stuff come back. I know there's people that I know who don't care if a bar came back. You know, they're they're just super health conscious or they don't see the point of it in their lives. But I also think about it like I love watching like prohibition um, documentaries by Ken Burns, just amazing and kind of how you know, when you try to push something down like this, it has a weird reaction. You know, the whole concept of prohibition when they're getting rid of alcohol, essentially, and, and bars, that did not go well at all. I mean, that was a bad deal. And I think that um, I'm not saying that it's like, oh, my God, it's so essential to have all this. I just think it's that it's just a part of our kind of Americana and for a lot of the world, you know, the socialization of bars and the connection of human beings together and sharing something with somebody. And there is a lot of fear of each other and stuff. I just wonder how that will be in like 10 years. I don't know. Maybe it will remain. Maybe it won't. Maybe there'll be something else that is much larger and looming over us. That's, that's why we have these discussions, you know. I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm, I'm in line with with your train of thought there. There's also a concern for just the multitude of people who are living in a tip, you know, tip based income where, you know, you have a lot of that speculation where are they trying to essentially get rid of that? They're trying to get rid of cash altogether. And the industries that they've, um, you know, shut down are the ones that are predominantly cash focused. So you have a lot of theorists out there and I don't, I don't even want to call it a conspiracy because 
we've seen it happen in our lifetime. You know that China um, has this digital currency program that everyone's logged into. And there's also um, India, I think a couple of years ago, overnight, um, took all the cash out of their economy. And like, you couldn't get money out of an ATM. You couldn't pay for anything. I think they were trying to um, get rid of all their small bills or something crazy like that. So when you're dealing with um, a made up construct such as money, (laughs) it's really easy to just, you know, there really are no hard truths or facts when it comes to money. It's all, it's all made up and we have to consider ourselves animals and there's no other species in the world that, you know, is forced to, um, you know, live in the way we do. And I'm not complaining. I mean, we're a first world nation, so we have a lot of luxuries. And even while people are suffering, um, you know, the first thing I said is that I, I'm blessed to, still be able to, you know, stay afloat right now. I don't know what'll happen in two months or three, but um, there are people who are definitely struggling. Um, And not just here, but of course in other countries too. But I mean, it's not natural for us to be going to work, you know, 10 hours a day and to, you know, live beyond our means. And that's essentially what this is showing us too, is like, we're we're so heavily relied on credit and, um, using the credit cards, living beyond our means that I don't think anyone prepared for this or knew that this was going to be something that happened in 2020. So there's a lot of people who, I mean, my, my family is one of them. You know, I've got a brother who's struggling right now, um, concerned. So it's, it's scary. I don't know anyone that's been affected by the coronavirus um, directly, but six degrees of separation, you know, I'm sure that someone I know has, has been affected directly. So it's not, not disputing the legitimacy of the virus or, um, the death tolls or anything like that, but it's a little terrifying to me. I'll step down my soapbox now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, Carla, Carlo, so interesting. So that's an interesting topic of conversation. Cause you know, um, I'm in Washington state. And for like a while, we were like, you know, people were like, you're in Washington state. Oh my gosh. Like, are you okay? Yeah. You're like at the epicenter. Yeah. I'm like, I'm okay. And this was like when we were like the, like the, the center, like you said, of all of it. And then now we're like really low. We're really low on the whole scale. Um, because you know, obviously other States and specifically New York went crazy. Um, but you know, we ended up having a decent amount of cases in our town and the um, nursing home. Actually, my wife used to work there. She doesn't work there anymore. Um, while back, she ended up starting to teach again at the university. But um, but one of her um, college coworkers uh, got the coronavirus, and they were in a room around each other. And so my wife came home, and she said, you know, I... Uh, I was around one of my coworkers who contracted the coronavirus. And uh, I said, what was that? What's that like? Like when she told you, was everybody nervous and stuff? And she's like, a little bit, you know, she said, but that means, you know, I'm here at home with you guys. So we're just going to have to see what happens, you know, and nothing happened uh, for us. You know, we went the 14 days of doing literally nothing. I mean, we're in shelter in place anyways, but I, I literally didn't go anywhere, drive anywhere. 
but this lady who had it, I mean, she had a pretty severe case of it. I mean, it took her a month to recover. That's a long time to recover from something. And it was mm-hmm. crushing her on a regular basis. Um, so, I mean, she's fine now, but it was just knowing this person and how it affected her. She had mentioned to my wife that it was, it's no joke. This is no joke. Like this is horrible to have when you have a decent amount of symptoms with it. You know, I know that some people are asymptomatic and have more milder things, but um, when it is bad, apparently it's extremely horrible to have. Um, So, you know, I think we've definitely been around in that environment. So, I mean, I take it serious. I mean, I take all those things serious, you know, just because you're not around, it doesn't mean it's not real and things going on for that. I mean, there's things probably happening in Indiana. I have no clue that's going on. doesn't mean that I don't believe it's happening. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that. You can do that with a lot of things in life. It doesn't have to be the coronavirus, you know, and a variety of things. But um, I think it's a very interesting time. And I, I wonder about like, now we having all these virtual happy hours. I've been a part of many of them people. I've been enjoying myself, just so you know. <laughs> I have yet to do one. I suppose this is my first. Yeah, I'm drinking right now, actually. I'm gonna I'm just drinking this Sazerac rye whiskey. It is delicious. Uh very like on the back end, a lot of bite. A lot of bite to it. What's the proof on that? Ooh, 45. Okay. Yeah, not bad, but it's so I'll join you in a rye. I have our written house bottled and bond hundred proof rye. This is excellent if you like rye-based old fashions. Yes, I love old fashions. And by the way, does your does your distillery do they ship at all, or how's that work? Honestly, I I don't know. Last um, I've actually been out of the game for a couple months. I've been mm-hmm. um, on the mend from a couple surgeries. Yeah. So I've been healing up there, um, but. And of course we shut our bar down and our distillery down to the public. I think it was March 15th. So last I was there was in February and we did not have anything. We were not shipping as of yet, but my boss and his boss had gone out to Napa Valley late last year um, to talk to some of the, the wine or the vineyards out there to see how, you know, how their shipping policies were because, you know, like you said, you have this um, quarterly subscription. Yeah. So there, there is some way you can ship alcohol, but I think it's based on the state and it's not federal. It is on the state oh, because they list states that don't ship on the site. And honestly, it's a lot of states. It had to be over 20 states. Um, I was just fortunate that Washington wasn't a state that was on that list. So I think that's why I was able to get it. Yeah. Welcome to the intermission. I want you to think about, at this time, fun. As much as I like diving very deep into complex subject matter and really digging in and dialing in to the nature of a variety of mysteries. I also love just having fun. Whatever form that is that's responsible, that I'm responsible in doing that, it can be easy to get caught up in living a life that is structured beyond what we're meant to be. 
It's okay to let loose. Do it responsibly and let it go. So do you um, do you gravitate towards one uh, one distillery or one brand or? No, I I just, I just really like trying different things. You know, I'm not someone who's like, oh, this is like my thing. You know, like with alcohol, I'm kind of a spin the wheel um, type of person in a sense that like I'll ask questions. I want to know how does this taste? This is, I'm like you, you can go on vacation. You know, I'm, I buy booze. I want to, I'm like so excited to go to a bar when I go any country any place. That's like one of the first things I want to do. My wife and I is like, we need to go bar hopping. I got to check out the bar scene around here. What's, what's the, you know, the sense of things, not to like get crazy. It's just more of like, I want to know like what's regionally really good here or what is, um, what's their drink that people love here. You know, this is so diverse in different places, you know? So Mm -hmm. I tend to just more be a seeker of what's out there wherever I'm at. In the same way. Um, that's a good point, too, about bars in that, you know, not just the fact that it's usually where you go to congregate and, you know, share an evening with people. But depending on where you're at, like Louisville is a huge tourism city that we rely on. It's like 30 percent tourism, um, mm. our budget. And you've got people from all over the world coming to taste bourbon. <laughs> like, Do you really want everyone from all over the world in one bar, you know, sit? sitting close together. It's, it's different when you have these like neighborhood corner bars where, you know, the same people come in every night after their three o'clock shift and, you know, have a couple Miller lights. Like you see the same people I've worked in those bars and then you can kind of build your own herd immunity that way. But Mm -hmm. then you have, you know, if you work in a distillery bar, like I do, or, you know, you're going to like a five-star restaurant, you know, your people are coming from all over to, to experience that. And then you're like throwing everything back in the, virus bucket <laughs> it's like spinning the spinning the wheel like, am i gonna get it like and you just don't know but what's curious is there's no other virus that we've done this for like no other and and the numbers aren't even there yet to to match you know the 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 death toll or the recovery rates or anything and so this is this is all very curious to me i'm i'm um eager to see where this ends up landing yeah, I think a lot yeah, of it is because it's a, a novel coronavirus, so it's, you know, it's, it's new. There's no human that's had immunity to it or exposure to it before. So it was this kind of perfect mixture of, hey, we weren't prepared for this. This wasn't something other people have ever had, really, from to our knowledge. So we didn't really know what it was going to do to the population, in a sense. And uh, there's actually a really good... Uh, documentary, not not really a documentary, but it's called Explained on Vox on uh, Netflix. And it's like a 26-minute overview about coronavirus and all the other versions, because there's six other coronaviruses uh, that are around. And it talks about kind of the origin of it and jumping from animals to humans. And it's really interesting uh, stuff uh, to really get like hardcore science information about it. But there's still just a lot we don't know. And much like you were saying about bars and stuff, you know, it's just a lot we don't know. And I tell you one thing I don't know, like, well, maybe I do know a little bit is I know is like, for me, I have a very like, when I drink, I want to try something that is, I think we talked about it last time, like, 
I want to try something that's like really different that the bartender's spinning. There's a lot of creativity in it. And you know, it, I like the cup, what type of cup of it is it served in? That's like a big deal to me. I'm really into that. You know, um, the shape of it, you know, what the rim looks like. I'm like really into all that stuff, but I notice like a lot of people I've known, like they just don't give a shit about that stuff. You know, like they just want, I know a lot of kind of like your Miller light crowd or your Coors light. They just want to have something, a light beer, sit around, sit around and shoot the shit. Like I like to shoot it, but I also want to have a more sophisticated version of drinking when I drink. That's fair. I, uh, I'm excited to see what hap- what comes out of this because I have a feeling like we're going to return to the trash cocktails that we have. Oh, there it one. is. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's a, now that's a bark. <laughs> like, yeah. I call him Bob Barker because his bark <laughs> is just so ferocious sometimes. He's this 25 pound mini Ostadoodle with a that's funny. bark like a banshee. <laughs> What is the trash cocktails? What is that? What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I think we've come a long way in cocktails where, you know, we think we're all on the same page with wanting quality ingredients like fresh juices and things like that. So I think we're going to return to a simpler time, but we're going to learn how to, um, you know, just enjoy it a little bit cleaner because some of the articles I've read and I'm kind of tending to agree is like, enough already enough with the 12 step cocktail um, <laughs> <so sorry. laughs> i love it no it's fine it's totally fine barley um you know people people left when they come out of this they're gonna want simplicity and to touch on the point that you made a few minutes ago about like when you're drinking you want to or when you're cooking in the kitchen you want to drink and um, I think a lot of people right now are are experimenting with um, cooking and like just diving into more of like the, the culinary kitchen at home thing. And I think they're doing the same thing with alcohol. I think they're um, splurging a little bit more on some products that they normally wouldn't. So they can sit down and learn how to taste, the, you know, the difference between a rye or a bourbon or, uh, you know, a Japanese whiskey or whatever. And they're able to start to to develop an appreciation and with that appreciation comes more simplicity and i think people are going to be more receptive to like this is going to be the best sex on the beach you've ever had Mm. and they'll be like yeah let's bring these cocktails back you know and just bring them back fresher and more more simple because with these expectations now making these drinks like are you even really gonna be able to enjoy it are you gonna go in sit down, you know, at a table six feet from the person that you came in with and, you know, have a bartender make you this drink that you don't even get to watch them because there's no one sitting at the bar anymore, um, you know, to produce this cocktail that you just don't really know know that much about. I'm not saying it's going to go away completely, but I think we're going to fall back on some simpler things. Our tastes are going to be elevated and we're going to fall back on more easy to moderate cocktails that you can still enjoy and have a good time with. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, it definitely makes, um, a ton of sense. You know, those types of drinks, kind of your sex on the beach and stuff. I never have those, you know, I like, I like that's something I'll have on vacation. Maybe, you know, um, I'm always looking for something that is like high level cocktail making. And maybe that is a kind of a casualty initially of all this going on 
forward. But like, I got my friends into that too. Like, I'd be like, let's try something different, guys. Let's really see what else is open up your palette, you know, like, let's see, you know, all these different. And so I basically built my inventory, my bar that way, you know, getting like uh, elderflower, Benedictine, all these different things, chartreuses and all that. I got that stuff in my inventory because I was drinking it at um, like your cocktail bars, you know, places with no food, just drinks. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to explore those type of places. Like, why would you have just a cocktail bar? You know, like no food. I was curious about that. Or, you know, the first time, whenever I go into place, I don't even look for the food first. I always ask, can I see the cocktail menu? And that's always like, my wife knows, she's like, he wants the cocktail menu. Don't even give him the menu yet. Just, he wants to see what drinks you guys have because he's definitely going to order. You don't have like, you know, like, then I want to see what is the food and how does this pair together? Maybe I'm snobby about it, I guess, but it's just, I like having different options, you know? So if I don't mind going to a dive bar and stuff, believe me, there's plenty around here that, you know, I go to every once in a while, but it's like, I know what I'm getting myself into, you know, it's not going to be like this amazing cocktail thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to have to drink beer here. But a good thing is it's like, if I'm not going to have a cocktail that's more high end, I definitely want to have like a regional beer. I want to have something that's local beer, regional beer. I don't want your straight large domestic product beer, Coors Light, Miller Light, Michelob, like that, that disgusts me. I want no part of that. <laughs> that's funny. I, I get it. And at least you have an awareness for that because there are people who have, you know, they've just jumped on the craft cocktail mm-hmm. thing so much that they expect to have a, you know, a five point old fashioned made from at a dive bar. Mm-hmm. And then they get upset. When they're like, you can't do that. I remember um, when I was working at that uh, uh, grape and grain exchange in Jacksonville, and then I moved to Wisconsin, I picked up a part-time job at a sports bar. And someone ordered an old fashioned and the an old fashioned in Florida is a lot different than one in Wisconsin to, to begin with. But um, they had this like weird old fashioned syrup in the well. And I, I just started like um, taking sugar packets and like using that and trying to find bitters and, you know, finding an orange in the cooler somewhere to like make an old fashioned because I kind of started off that like I, I just dove so deep in making craft cocktails that now I don't know how to make anything without fresh ingredients. I always try to like take the the nineties and the early two thousands kind of, you know, trashy drinks like a Cosmo and like really just amp it up so that it's the best freaking Cosmo you ever had. Like that, that's how classics are made. I mean, the, there's the crafty and the trendy stuff, but when you go back, go back to the just basics, really good cocktails are only a few ingredients. And it's all about balance. You know, you, you can kind of start getting in some weird places with all sorts of um, liqueurs and syrups and everything. And so then you would never be able to recreate at home. And that's part of the joy of having a drink like that when you go out, because you know that you probably would never be able to execute it at home, which is I'm the same way as you are. You know, you go and you want to just try something different. Uh, but for the people who actually want to start investing and in learning how to make the drinks, it's good to like, you you know, use your bar as an educational opportunity for them and show them how to just do it at home real simple and clean. And, um, you know, they can be mixologists at home too. So I think we're going to come out of this. We've been so spoiled in this country and, you know, anywhere else for that matter, first world, um, that we have all these expectations. And I think it's, it's not the millennial and the, the generation uh, Z and X or 
don't even know. Is it X? I don't know. Are we X and Honestly, I don't know. It's it's always a shifting age group. Too many labels. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But, you know, that's all you see in the headlines are labels. So you have to identify yourself with one. Identify Uh, yourself now. (laughs) That's right. Who are you? I'm a Gen Xer. Do you have the vaccine? I don't have a vaccine. I mean, I have alcohol. Does that count? I mean, <laughs> that's what I'm terrified of. I, I, I don't, I don't want to be forced to, uh, I mean, I'll be forced to have a shot of Jägermeister that I can handle. I will not be forced to have a shot of vaccine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> like, oh, that's unbelievable. That's pretty funny. That's actually pretty funny. Somebody forced me to get a shot of Jaeger. I'm like, that'd probably be the easiest force job ever for me to have a shot of Jaeger. I'd be like, well, how about a second shot? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, not for me. That that spirit falls in the um, the sophomore year in college. Oh no, I'll never touch again. No, yeah. bad experience. Oh yeah, I was. I mean, Jaeger bombs and just those are delicious. Just oh my gosh, <laughs> what? Who am I talking to They're right now? They're so delicious. The Jaeger bombs. Oh my gosh, I used to actually. This is the degenerate version of me back in the day, but I used to go to my master's class. It was like a statistics class. And every Wednesday, a group of us would go to uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. And uh, I used to have, this is no joke, I have like two Jaeger bombs in a row. And then uh, we would walk, because we would just walk to the bar, to Buffalo Wild Wings, two of them. And then it would walk right to class, just right to class. And I did that every Wednesday for an entire semester with some buddies of mine. And this, this is when I first started drinking. This was when I was like 23 is when I started drinking. So I was really late to the game. And uh, I mean, I was loaded in class every Wednesday. I got an A. So I got an A, you know. It's that um, upper and downer combination, yeah. I suppose. That just yeah. made you level out. I mean, I was laughing so hard in class. The teacher had to know. I mean, it was like a row of us just like, giggling and you know taking tests it was all woozy taking tests and stuff but i don't know it was i mean i never did that type of thing again but it was like where i loved jaeger bombs i was like these things are so delicious (laughs) have you ever had it with uh well there was an energy drink that i had it with that i actually liked um it was called 180 and it was orange flavored Mm, and that was really good but um yeah, Jaeger, Malibu, Corbell. That's my other one who's oh. she's off the chain. Sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> man, there's a whole list of spirits I can never even really? smell again. It's like a long Corval. list. I mean, what is going on here? <laughs> Corbell. So when I first started drinking, it, I was drinking Malibu and cranberry with a shot of Goldschlager. Oh, love Goldschlager. Love it. Oh, uh, yeah. Nope. Can't do it anymore. Hmm. I know who does that anymore, <laughs> anyways? It's such a like. 90s drinkers of it's like you know you think so but go up north anything like chicago and and, and further north is like goldschlager and uh rumplemans and black hoss and oh rumplemans so good oh my gosh <laughs> that's like syrup i don't know i don't have a much Do like it's Fernet? like liquid fire i you know what i have a complicated relationship with fernet i uh what I mean by that is like I've had it several times in Las Vegas at Park on Fremont. Uh, that's like their thing. They like to get everybody a, a shot of Fernet, but it tastes like gasoline to me. So it's like, 
what I think gasoline. Let me let me rephrase this. I've never had gasoline to drink. Okay, people. It just what I think gasoline would taste like is what it that's that it's really disgusting, but I've had shots of it, you know. We had it on tap Ooh. at one bar I worked at in Florida. So it had some like nice NO2 action going on. Um, wow. But I, I really, it's like, you ever brush your teeth and then drink coffee? It's very similar. Yeah. So that's about as far as I get in that taste profile. Wow. Um, I don't mind bitterness. I actually enjoy bitter stuff because I, I like dark chocolate and I enjoy my coffee black. So I don't have a problem with those tasting profiles, but, um, yeah, I just, I was, I was forced into it and <laughs> they tried to break me. They tried to get me to fall in love with it. And I, I just couldn't, but my, the account that I worked at, uh, it was the number one account in Northeast Florida. So they always won the Fournette bike. So that was like bragging rights for that. Oh. for our uh, It's a weird drink, honestly, weird drink. Uh, like spirit. It's like. I don't know. It doesn't taste good, but like, it's kind of a tradition thing. Like if whenever I can go back to Vegas down the line, which is a whole nother conversation about Las Vegas, but, um, I like, I, it's like a tradition. We, none of us like, like it, but then when we go to this bar, it's like a thing. We just, we feel like we need to do. So then we just always do it. It's just weird drinking traditions and stuff. You know, it's like, but I, I have just loved that whole kind of German digestive base things rutaburger love that um just any of that stuff i think it's more of like how it agrees with me that's what i always say oh it agrees with me like tequila doesn't agree with me like i i never drink it because it always makes me feel nauseous when i have it so i just avoid it like the plague like literally you have a buddy who sometimes he'll try to bring trays of of uh of tequila shots you know at this restaurant on the beach around here and i just go i can't do this man like, I literally can't do this. And he's like, he knows me. He's like, okay, okay I, it's fine. And so I said, seriously, I can't do this. So I just avoid it, you know. That's smart. <laughs> you can't just get caught up in the pressure of it. For me, it's like, I understand other people don't like Jaeger. But for me, it's delicious. And it I feel like it agrees with my body. I don't know. It sounds really weird, but it just does. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot of, I mean, the the spirit itself is distilled with, tens of different herbs, you know, so it's actually like medicinal. Yes. I like that medicinal which is taste. What a lot of these, you know, digestives and these aperitifs are, they're supposed to um, arouse an appetite and they're, they're supposed to settle a stomach. You're, I mean, that's traditional drinking customs. You're supposed to have, you know, a pour after dinner to settle the stomach because all of the, um, the distillates that are in there, the herbs and the spices and the secret recipe. That's, I mean, that's like folkloric culture in a distilled spirit. Like that's essentially what it is. It's, it's yeah. old medicine. Um, where now it's just, you've come down to these very like, you know, fine tuned distillation, high tech, um, you know, super clean and crisp. That never would have happened, you know, 200 years ago. Of course. No, definitely uh, which not. is good which is good for like the higher end stuff because you know that it's been distilled more and there's um, you know more of the heart of the distillate and not the heads and the tails, um, you know, which is usually what brings the hangover and the, the nausea and stuff. So, I mean, it, it's good for that, but um, 
Yeah, I try to stay away from the real sugary stuff. That seems to be what gives me the hangover. If I mix anything, like if I, I'm okay if I stick with one spirit for the night, uh, but as soon as I start mixing, it's it's a guaranteed headache. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like a lot of people have that. It's like a pretty common thing. I wanted to ask you, because I'm not sure a lot of people know this, but, and I think it's a good thing to know, like, what's the difference between kind of your low quality, let's say whiskey or bourbon, low quality uh, version of that versus your top shelf or really high quality uh, based uh, bourbon? Is it the number of times it's been distilled? Talk a little bit about that. Not necessarily. I mean, you've got whiskey is a really broad category. Um, There's all these rules and regulations about what whiskey is, depending on what country it's coming from. Uh, If you want to stick with, you know, American whiskey and bourbon, um, essentially, like if you're talking about the, the very low quality, you can actually find some decent bourbons. Um, on the lower shelves in the stores that still are relatively smooth, um, depending on what distillery they're coming out of. But as far as bourbon's concerned, we'll just start there. Um, bourbon has to, it has a unique set of standards it has to meet. Um, so it has to be made from at least 51% corn and it has to be a um, food grade, a yellow number two corn. It has to be um, aged. Well, let's go back a little bit for a second. Um, it has to be at least 51% corn. It has to be made in the U.S. Um, the only thing you can add to it is water to have that bourbon whiskey name on it. Um, it has to be taken off the still at 160 degrees. It has to be put in the barrel at no more than 125, and it can't be lower than 80 proof. So you have these, like, you have this kind of, like, um, spectrum of of proof that it has to fall into. Um, And you could essentially take the bourbon or the distillate off the, you know, off the still, throw it in a barrel. The barrel itself is important too, because it has to be charred new American white oak. It can't be any other wood and it has to be charred. It can be a, a container of any sort. It doesn't have to be a barrel, but that's what most distillers prefer to use. Um, because it's just been, you know, a tried and true form of a container forever. So they just prefer the barrel, but, you know, you can throw it in any oak container um, and take it back out within seconds and it can be a bourbon. Typically bad bourbon is, or, you know, unpleasant whiskeys, bourbons will, will fall into that super, super young because it hasn't had time to um, mesh with the wood because the wood from the barrel gives about 60% or more of its flavor. Um, So essentially what you have, if you're just pulling it off the still and throwing it in a barrel or in a barrel, you have white dog, new make, um, a form of moonshine, basically. So when it comes to quality, you're looking at an age, um, you're looking at uh, all sorts of factors, like uh, the traditional way of aging, a bourbon, you know, just um, in a rick house as opposed to a quality controlled um, building. So that's another thing too, is um, like if you have open aired just with the seasons, because that wood is going to open, um, that wood is going to, that wood grain is going to open up and you're in the hot summer days, it's going to expand. And so it's going to allow that um, 
that whiskey to flow in and out of that wood. Hmm. So that's what's pulling all those flavor notes. So the longer it stays and ages, typically um, the better it is. But for my personal palate, it tends to it tends to like kind of taper off around the 14 to 16 year because you're just getting so much oak. Um, it becomes really, really tannic and dry. Uh, for some people, that's their jam, you know, and I mean, I would never, I mean, I think the oldest bourbon I had was a 27 year, um, that actually our company made, it was the heaven Hill 27 year. And it was the remaining 40 barrels that we had from our devastating fire in 1996. So, I mean, to have something so old was awesome, but I wouldn't sip on it every night because it is just so complex and so tannic that it, it wasn't, you know, appealing to my my own subjective, uh, <laughs> my own subjective tongue. So uh, I don't know if that answers your questions, but typically, yeah, like bourbon, you won't see a major distributor put bourbon on the shelves. Um, anything younger than four years, you can get a Kentucky straight or a whatever state you're from straight whiskey. And that has to be at least two years aged in the state that it identifies with. Um, and anything younger than basically two has to, I mean, it has to have an age statement. If it, if you threw it in the barrel for a 30 seconds, it has to say 30 second age statement on there. Uh, whereas anything over four, typically you won't see an age statement on. Um, and like blends and things. I'm actually, I have Elijah Craig's small batch here. That used to be a 12 year bourbon uh, that had an age statement on it. And then they actually, now that they're doing the small batch, they're doing a uh, nine to 12 year on average. So you have to put the youngest age on there if you're going to put a statement on there. So, you know, an eight year bourbon isn't really going to catch up, catch the eye. It's like a marketing thing. Um, so you just take the, like, you take the age statement off and, um, you still have a multitude of, you know, a nice age range that you're tasting. Um, and the small batches are nice because they, they blend for consistency. So single barrels are great and that you get this like one-off unique expression of just one barrel, but then the small batches are typically more consistent and you're, you're going to expect to have the same thing every time you drink it. I don't know if that answers you your question. definitely answered the question. That was very complex, by the way. See guys, drinking is not that simple. Okay. It's, it's actually more than just drinking out of a can. All right. No, that was excellent. That was absolutely excellent. Uh, a lot of that I did not know. I just did not know. So uh, we were talking about um, your incredible knowledge of bourbon, clearly, and all of that. Um, and then for everybody who didn't know, um, Carla got pushed off of Zencaster, and I had to, you know, we had to wait for her to come back on, guys. All right. And so. <laughs> I was texting her on LinkedIn and we had a fun conversation. See, that's the funny thing. Like that conversation we were having off air. I wish that was taped. <laughs> I'm like, you can have like, it again. Okay. Let me rewind that whole thing. I used to drink when I started drinking, I started drinking like white Russians and red sours. And Carla asked me, do I like drinking those things now? I'm like, no, I don't drink that stuff. Now I want like a spirit forward. I want Manhattans. I want old fashions. And things of that nature. You know, I love those type of drinks. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's what happens when you, you evolve your, your drinking preferences and your palate, you know, the Amaretto Sours and the, you know, the, the more sugary, sweeter cocktails. Those are yeah. great as beginner drinks, but 
eventually, if you have, if you enjoy the flavor of alcohol, then I most people want to fall back on the tried and true classic cocktails like the Manhattan or the old fashioned. Yeah, and I find that they're pretty easy to make at home and uh, make, you know, you get a good uh, spirit with that and you can make some, I mean, I make some all the time. They're always delicious, you know, almost mm-hmm. like, and uh, when I go to a bar, it's like, I will order it, but it's kind of like, I want maybe a different version of it. I want to like, what's the twist on it, you know? But then like when people put all this ice and stuff and I'm like, what is going on here, man? I'm like... Why are you doing that? I sometimes I tell them like, please don't do that. Like, I don't want that watered down. I want to taste the strength, <laughs> you know. So you don't you don't like it stirred to be chilled? No, I do, but it's in the like. Then they're like pour the ice in it in the cup, you know. Oh, like they use the dirty it. ice. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't want this, man. Like at all. I've had that happen to me a few times. I'm like, can you please not make it like this? <laughs> you know. Yeah, if if you're if you're that particular, I recommend if you've got a skilled mixologist or bartender behind the bar, I recommend for anyone to really like just have a conversation with them and say, hey, this yeah. is how I like my old fashions made, uh, because it saves time. I'm sure the bartender or the mixologist has a list or you know of, right. of drinks that they've got to put out, and it gives. I mean, the straightforward. It's kind of hard to screw that up if if they have something that they can go off of. But for people who are just like, I don't know, it makes our job a little bit harder. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I like to use the um, 100 proof bottle and bond whiskeys for those classic drinks because um, especially if you're adding like for an old fashioned, if you're adding a little bit of sugar to it, um, that 100 proof really holds up in the cocktail. One of my favorites, I'm not drinking it today, but the Evan Williams white label, it's a bottle and bond product. It has some like nice orange and cherry flavors inherent in the whiskey already. So it's just like a nice compliment if you're going to drink a classical fashion with an, an orange and a cherry kind of thing. Like those two mm-hmm. fantastic old fashioned. That's just something you can just buy in most, you know, liquor stores or um, grocery stores that have liquor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The white label is probably second to bottom shelf, maybe. Well, maybe mid shelf now because a lot of the bottled and bond products um, have have gained momentum. There, a lot of people are curious about that kind of class of whiskey or you know class of spirit. So it's kind of come to the forefront a little bit more. But it's it's affordable, like fifteen bucks a bottle. What? Yeah. <laughs> I need to go out right now during this time and pot and get some of that. <laughs> like. I'm telling you, the uh, the Elijah Craig that I have here is uh, usually like 25 bucks a bottle, and you're talking about a nine to 12 year small batch bourbon of about 200 barrels go into making a you know that kind of flavor profile. So that's 25 bucks. Uh, Evan Williams single barrel is usually 25 to 30 bucks, and that's usually um, eight eight to nine years. So I, I'm of course I'm pumping up my company because we make for the most part, some really affordable whiskeys and I mean, good ones where and like blind taste tests and Evan Williams black, which is basically like our bottom shelf. Well, our second from bottom, we have an 80 proof green label, Evan Williams. And then we had the black label, which is the world's uh, second most popular bourbon. Uh, and we get blind taste tests with like some of the nicer competitors and we win blindly. So it's, it's kind of like our bragging rights, but yeah, I've always puts out a high quality product for sure for a fraction of the price. That's why some of the like 
trendier labels and stuff or the I mean it's it's good to support the craft industry of course you'll pay you'll pay a premium for those because they've got you know bigger overheads I suppose because they're you know small scale but um some of the more trendier labels and stuff out there isn't always worth the, the price tag but it like like I'll try something it. like wine you know yeah oh absolutely you know, you can get a great bottle of wine, very cheap. And then and sometimes, you you know, people with these get these two, three hundred dollars bottle of wine. You're like, OK, why? Why? You know, like and I think with with like liquor and stuff, I don't I'm not at the point where I know like what is really good. That's cheaper. Like what you just told me, I was like fifteen dollars. I'm like, are you serious? Like, that's crazy. Like, what's what's the big difference between a fifteen dollar really good um whiskey or bourbon versus like an $80 one. You know, I think, I don't know that of the consumer, they think it's just more expensive. So it must be a better quality, you know? Sometimes. I mean, there's a, a trend to uh, like, like from grain to glass now. So you've got a lot of kind of like um, organic grains being grown and, you know, that all will increase the price and um, like the, the old Forester 1910 was on my rotation for a while. That's the the newest one that old Forester put out. And um, yeah, when I, when I first bought it, it was like 75 bucks because they put them out in such limited releases that it, you know, it flies off the shelf and then you don't see it for six months. And then this last time I picked it up, it was 50. So, I mean, the price is going down. I don't think it's going to go down any further than that, maybe 45. Um, but the demand also is, you know, like the Kentucky Owl I have on my shelf, that's a hundred and twenty-five dollar bottle. You can't really find that stuff. It's that's all premium, premium things that are you know for the whiskey collector. Like you gotta have Kentucky Owl, you gotta have this one and that one, and Woodford Double Double Oaked, and all these like names that you, yeah, they're so highly allocated that not every account gets them, and then it's you know it makes it harder to to get your hands on it. That's interesting. I love learning about this stuff. That's for me. It's, you know, I like, obviously I like having a great time, but it's like, I mean, who was doesn't, I mean, it's not like you're drinking. If you want to drink something to just, you know, have something to drink, have some juice, you know, but like, like just the, the, I love learning about the kind of the, the technicalities of alcohol. I just always have, I mean, it's like, obviously I enjoy the other aspects of it, but I think there's just more to it than meets the eye. And I think when I drink, it's definitely so much about that. Like how, how I want to, I want to taste it. I want, I like the artistry. I like the, the vessel it's served in, you know, I like the garnish. I'm big into the garnishes. Like what's the garnish for this? You know, like a lot of people are like, whatever, you know, I just, just give me the drink. But I just think there's, there's a beauty in that. And it's, everything has something in it that maybe you're not aware of for it. So but that's just me. But I want to know what is the favorite, what's your favorite drink or the best drink you've ever had all time in your life? Well, I think we mentioned, I think we talked about this in the first podcast that we had. Um, I'm, I'm a purist. Um, like I talked about before, where you get to a point where all the bells and whistles are less and less appealing. You want something that is just so simple. <laughs> so I'm definitely like a, just a spirit on the rocks or a spirit neat to taste it. 
but I would say that my my favorite cocktail that I had was one called El Guapo at a restaurant that I worked at when I first moved to Louisville. And it was a beet infused tequila cocktail that drank a little bit like a like a margarita, but it was served as a it was served up, so you know, shaken and, and strained. And it had this nice spice to it. Um and so my whole challenge with being a bourbon mixologist, because what I do for my company is just, you know, showcase their products and it's all bourbon, essentially a little, a couple whiskeys, but, um, when people come tour the distillery, they're just looking to try the bourbon. So I make bourbon cocktails. And so I take those classic recipes like a margarita or something, and I spin it on his head and I use whiskey for it, for the base. So I recreated that a similar cocktail. Um, and you know, I used, uh, I, infused our uh, Evan Williams single barrel with, with beets. And it gave it like this beautiful, bright, um, you know, ruby color, uh, strained off, you know, kind of like that, that beet earthiness, that, that residue, or, you know, some of that grit that might be there. Cause you know, beets are very, very earthy. Um, and the garnish was just a uh, Persian lime oil that floated on top. So like little droplets, you know, would do designs on the top of the surface and it, people would come back for it. And it wasn't a top seller at my bar because it took a while to make because um, there were a few more steps involved. I smoked the glass on the inside. So I had this like nice, you know, smoky kind of chipotle because I used uh, some Angostura in there and then some Hellfire shrub bitters, which was like, um, or it's a Hellfire shrub. So it's an habanero shrub basically. So it had like a nice kind of smoky heat to it. Um, so it took a while to make, but I just... I, I, those are like all my favorite flavors together. Uh, so I really enjoyed uh, that cocktail and like the one that really just inspired me to try, try it with whiskey. And then of course I put my own jazz hands on it, but that's probably my jazz. favorite. <laughs> I like that. I like that. that sounds amazing. Actually. I don't really like beets, but I would try it. I would definitely, you know, it's funny. There are several things like food wise that I'm like, I just don't like the taste of that. But when I have it in booze, I like it. It's just a whole different like I do not like watermelon at all, really? but I hate it. I cannot stand watermelon, like eating it, but I've had many amazing watermelon based cocktails that I thought, wow, this is a delicious flavor. I just don't want to eat it actually, you know, <laughs> so I just don't want it. So, uh, it's just interesting that way, you know, as with the Cesarac, I think it says my favorite, it's definitely my favorite, but I would say close second is Again, all this absinthe stuff, anything with absinthe, I'm like totally crazy about is uh, the Necromancer. Oh, yeah. I love that drink. Again, I don't want it rinsed. I want the full power in there. I want to get punched in the face with flavor. I want to get punched in the face with flavor hard. You know, like I, I do. I, you know, it's ever something's like rinsed. I will tell the bartender, I'm like, can, can we not rinse this? Can I get the full effect in there? They're like, you sure? I'm like, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm like, give, give it to me, man. <laughs> you know? Have you had a classic um, absinthe drink made classically with the water drip with and the, the cubes? Yeah. Yes. I actually, at in Vegas, I was at Sage, this really super high-end restaurant in the Aria Hotel. Um, strange to think nobody's there right now. Uh, but- it was, that was the first absinthe I've ever had. That version of it was the first I ever had. They came by the table. 
and did the whole show and presentation. And I was like, wow, this is like crazy. I never seen this before. And that's when I fell in love with it. I was like, this may be the best thing I've ever had. Like in terms like the, the pure strength of it. I was like, this is something about this. I like, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm concerned for with the whole industry is like, it's such an intimate industry to be a part of. I mean, yeah, people are coming in to share their day with you. Like when, when I'm serving my cocktails at my bar, it's like, I'm meeting people from all over the world. I might not ever see them again. Um, sometimes they come back and visit and they see me again. And that makes me feel awesome because there's 350 bars in Louisville and you're coming back. You've got three days in the city and you're going to come back and see me like that. That means a lot to me. You know, you get to know your patrons that way. And I just, I just can't foresee an industry that, that doesn't make space for that, you know, where you don't want to be part of that guest's experience for that night. You don't want to like, how are you going to showcase the drink? How are you going to bring it to the table? Like, how are you going to present it? And, you know, part of the joy of sitting in a bar is, is watching that all go down. I, I love to sit at the bar, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, even if it's just a normal bar, I just, I like to see that engagement and the interaction and that person work. And I like to see their techniques and, you know, their, their rhythm. And um, it's all like, there's just chaos, but it, it <laughs> I guess that cause I've worked in the industry for so long that it's like, you get used to, you know, that, that chaos and that flow. But I like to I like to watch it when I when I go out. So I just I'm concerned for the future of that. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I, it's so funny when my my wife and I go out. I'm just like you know we'll sit like in the main dining area, and I don't want to do it. Like I'm like I'm like against it, <laughs> you know. But I'm like trying to have a dinner, and I'm looking at the bar like a long lost lover or something. I'm like I should be up there with you. I should be up there. Because I will always prefer to sit at the bar, no matter where I go, ever. I want to sit at the bar. I like sitting high up. I like watching the bartenders work. I love the conversation you have with random people and things. Um, and I hope that, you know, obviously the, it, it's it's going to change and how things are going to be initially. But I hope that at some point down the line, who knows how far down the line that'll be, that... Um, we'll still have those things because, you know, for someone who maybe doesn't drink and they see alcohol is not this great thing and, you know, they don't care about it. I think they don't understand some of the, this is going to sound dumb, like the maturity behind it. I know that sounds stupid. You're talking about drinking, but like there's a sophistication of maturity to sitting down at a bar and having a good conversation and drinking your drink slowly and enjoying how things are made. And, that's a beautiful thing that I think sometimes if you're not a part of that, you're missing out on something really special that happens. It's not like people are just sitting there just getting blitzed out of their mind all the time. You know, it's like there's a real special nature of that. And that's one of the things I miss the most. I used to do that with my buddies all the time is just sit there, just have a few over several hours and just talk about the, the planets and the stars and the cosmos and and all these different topics. Like, that's amazing. There's... There's nothing sexier than a woman coming to the bar and ordering a flight of whiskey because as, as a woman myself to see another woman have the confidence and sit down and be able to like, you know, try, you know, try a whiskey flight if she's never had one before or already like deep dive into it and know what she likes because it's such a, it's always been, you know, a male driven spirit that 
now that, you know, it's open to everybody and I hate to say it like that, but, um, it's, you know, more inclusive now. And, you know, women are, women are like dominating the industry too, like master distillers. Um, and there's a lot of, um, just women on the forefront now kind of leading the way and becoming master tasters. And it's nice to be, you know, a woman at a distillery bar and being able to kind of be that conduit of, you know, information. Cause really when they come to the bar, they want to know how to taste bourbon and they want to know the steps and what to look for and all that. Uh, And then of course, once they're comfortable, then that's when we start talking about like aliens and (laughs) (laughs) exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know, it's like, uh, I always say it's for people like you've known them forever. And once they're done feeling intimidated by the newness in front of them, then they start warming up and then you can really kind of get to know them a little bit better. <laughs> but it's also intimidating for them because, you know, they don't know and they're they're there to learn. So it, it makes for a, a fun interaction. Like there's no two people or two experiences that are ever the same. But you will yeah, find commonalities yeah between a lot of the guests too, which is fun because then, then you can start to read them, which makes it even more fun for me. I wanted to, that's really awesome. I I just think there's a really kind of insulated or insular experience that happens in bars that can't always be attributed to just drunks and guys. Yeah, of course that happens. There's some of that, but like a lot of the places I've been, it's just a good time, honestly. And, you know, just a lot of deep thinking. Again, I know you may listen to this. Somebody goes, really, Darian, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. I've had some of the best conversations about life and some of the most complex and deep thinking thoughts while drinking at a bar. I really have. I could also say that about smoking weed and taking edibles too. Just, I mean, just I'll throw that in there. But uh, (laughs) I mean, I regularly have had that experience with, with that, with those. Uh, But I think it's just a very, it can be a very enlightening experience if you approach it in a different way uh, for that. And it could also be, just be a throw down, blow it out experience too. I mean, there's, I've done it all, man. I, I've done it, you know, I've been there. And this stage of my life, I just perform more slowed down experience. But I wanted to ask you about your thoughts about cocktails in a can. Oh, yeah. Well, not really sure. I haven't tried them. Um, you have to be careful. You have to read the side of the, the can because they still might be a what's considered a malt beverage. So essentially, it's going to be like a Smirnoff ice in a can instead of actual vodka and ginger beer for a mule or something like that. So um, I think it's definitely getting more popular. I mean, I I would like to see more more engagement there i think there's a lot of flavors like um like one of the cocktails i make it's my second most popular drink uh it would be pretty easy to recreate at home but um it would be awesome as like a little fizzy cocktail but it would be like one of those you know proprietary formulas where it would only be this cocktail but people crush it and they love it and they don't know there's bourbon in it and they're (laughs) The thing about it, if they're going to ease into bourbon because they're intimidated by it, they start with a cocktail first. And so, you know, I, I'd only say maybe two to three percent of the people who don't like it just will not ever like bourbon. And that's OK. I'm not looking for 100 percent approval rate. You know, that's not going to happen. But if I can find flavors that pair together 
and that people are able to, that's their gateway to bourbon, then yeah, let's, let's get them on that train. <laughs> let's do it. So um, I think the cocktails are great as long as they're not like, as long as they're unique instead of, you know, everyone putting out a, a Kentucky mule or vice, you know, whatever Miami vice or something like that. Like just have some unique cocktails that you can simplify and scale out. Um, and I think, I think they could be really successful. I've definitely had a few as of late and, um, they've been pretty good, you know, and like a vodka soda type of thing, you know, and like, I did have one that was, um, oh my gosh, I'm losing it now. It, I can't remember. It was a gin and tonic. And it had some different flavors in it. And it was really delicious, honestly. And then I actually had an old-fashioned in a can one time. It was this tiny little baby can. It was at this big barbecue last summer at the resort here in town. And I was very skeptical. I was like, old-fashioned in a can? I was like, I don't think so. And uh, my buddy was like, come on, man. You got to try it. Let's do it, man. (laughs) And uh, that's exactly how he sounds, too. He's like, hey, man. Hey, man. And I was like, okay, uh, I love old fashions. I'm not going to be a snob at this thing. And it was unbelievable. It tasted exactly like an amazing old fashioned. It was what? in this baby little can. What was it? Exactly. Do you remember the brand? No, which is the worst thing about it because I've been going to like Bevmo, all these like big liquor chains. I'm like, what do you have this? And they're like, well, what's it called? I'm like, I don't remember. I just remember it was a tiny little can like little baby little can and uh, it was some Washington brand and I couldn't believe how much it was just as good as any old fashioned I've had at a high end cocktail bar. Just as good. I just don't know what it was called. I really don't know. They nailed it. And I'm like, I wanted to buy like several packages of it, man. I was like, I need this. This is awesome. If I find out at some point, I'll tell you. Please do, because I'd be interested in trying that. I, I try not to, you know, have too much sugar and stuff. So I, I, I have control issues. Like, I don't like to drink yeah. too many things that I don't know how it's made and, you know, what yeah. the, you know, how they make it and what's in it. Sure. Oh, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Because well, they don't add nutritional information on the side of those. So you don't really know what you're getting. It's just a mystery. You know what? That's true. Sometimes I like the surprise. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I have a buddy who's all about that. He goes, Darian, I just like to be surprised sometimes. Except he plays a weird game with like edibles. He's like, I don't know how much, how many milligrams he said. He's like, sometimes I like the surprise. I'm like, yeah, not me. I don't want to be surprised on that, actually. <laughs> but, you know. I, yeah, I, I think if people don't go ham out of the gate, you know, and not like crush three in one hour that they can actually enjoy the yeah. uh, existential questions that you know might arise because you know alcohol is a (laughs) it's a depressant so you're you know depressing your nervous system and your brain is actually slowing down which gives you an opportunity (laughs) to pull the thoughts out of your head and maybe have a workable conversation with you know meaningful one without feeling drunk but it's so easy to go from zero to 60 i think i have the perfect combination i got it i have it world premiere here i think if you do you have like one and a half drinks right around there. You may be the smartest you've ever been during that time. Beyond that, you're worthless. <laughs> here's the problem with that. And here's, <laughs> that's a great, great number to shoot for. But when you start 
dabbling in the high proof whiskeys or high proof anything, one and a half drinks is easily a half a drink. And then you think you're on that one and a half par and then you've doubled your amount and you're slurring your words. <laughs> so it's, I mean, 70 to 80 proof. I mean, I think even chartreuse is like 90. It is. I mean, it yeah. definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> that packs a punch too. I, you got to be careful. I've had some incredibly intelligent conversations over like two cocktails over several hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, the problem is, it's like, if you're going out like you're pre-gaming, you know, it's like a tailgating or something, or like in my case it was always like bowling. It's like, once you got to like the number, the third one, there's just no point in even having the conversation anymore. It's just like, okay. You know, then you're just kind of like a cave person at that point. And you're just operating on like, yo, let's go. You know, you become really simple in your thoughts, you know? And, uh, but, but it's, you know, but you can have some extremely enlightening conversations on some level if you have very little, because you're very un- un- uninhibited at that point. Right. And you're willing to put out some pretty interesting uh, ideas about life, you know? I don't know. That's me, at least. <laughs> well, and that's what I like about Elijah Craig is that, you know, I can have these meaningful conversations with Elijah and I can say I'm with Elijah and people think I'm actually talking to someone else. But really, it's that's just clever. me and Elijah Craig. That's it's very clever. Me and, me and Elijah. It's me and the bourbon. Is that how close you guys are? It's just me and the bourbon. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know Elijah Craig small batch bourbon on a first name basis. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a very intimate relationship. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, it's true. Don't judge me. Okay. <laughs> that's so awesome. Well, I'm going to wrap this up, man. You know, I could talk about booze for days. Seriously. It's like, it's definitely a thing. And I appreciate Carla, your second time on and extending your time to speak with me about, I think, a fascinating topic. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Darian. Of course. We will be in touch. All right. Sounds good. All right. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.